Don't we love Betsy Roy? I think we ought to give Betsy a God bless you. Without Betsy, uh, there, there would be no meeting like this. It's just been my joy to be here with you. I'm your Georgia sister. Aren't you glad you have a sister in Georgia and that we've come together and we've celebrated the Lord Jesus Christ? I thank you for your love, your hospitality. I thank Jackie and the committee for all the hard work that they've done. Elizabeth, my hostess, she has just taken care of me. I think I'll just take Elizabeth back because she's really doing a better job than Jean. So uh, I I may just, uh, you know, kidnap her and take her. And weren't we blessed with these young girls tonight to see our young daughters come and, and worship the Lord. I love dancing. Uh, I I watch Dancing with the Stars. I hate to admit that from the pulpit, but I like dancing. I just, uh, first date I ever had with my husband, we went to a place called the Jungle Club, and it was just as bad as it sounded. But desperate Christian women will do a lot to get a husband. So I went to the Jungle Club on my first date, and he could dance marvelously well, and I could dance marvelously well, and We just have always enjoyed dancing, but you know, when we serve God, there's just not that opportunity to dance ballroom dancing like we used to do. So one night, you know, we were in our house, and I was in my chair, he was in his chair, and a commercial came on television, and I went this way to go to the kitchen, and he went this way to go to the bathroom, and we sort of met in the middle of the room, and when we did... Jean grabbed me and twirled me around, and we kind of did a cha-cha step, and he twirled me around again, and then bent me over his arm in a dip, and my back went out. I was at the chiropractor's for weeks and walking with a limp, so uh, I just watched Dancing with the Stars, and I watched these young girls, and uh, one day in heaven we'll all dance like that, so thank God for our young daughters who dance. Mark chapter 4. And I want you to sit up and pay attention tonight. I know you've been in service for, you know, hour after hour. But let me give you a little clue. I've, I've watched sinners. Sinners can go to a nightclub and stay there at 4 o'clock in the morning and just be wide awake. And we Christians just belly out at 10 o'clock. So how many believe there's enough of the Holy Ghost here that we won't belly out at 10 o'clock? If sinners can celebrate the devil till 4 in the morning, couldn't we just stay awake until God's through and just have some energy here? You know, if I have to stand up here in high heels, I like energy back from you. So let's, let's cooperate and let's see what God's going to do. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And the same day when the evening was come, he, Jesus, said unto them, his disciples, let us pass over to the other side. Let us pass over to the other side. And then the story tells us that Jesus and the disciples entered into a boat, went through a storm at sea. And Mark chapter 5 tells us that they came to the other side. The other side was a region which was known by the name of Gadara. And on the other side, Jesus met a man who was possessed with multitudes of demons. And Jesus cast the devils out of this insane man. And then Jesus met a woman with an issue of blood who had been bleeding for 12 years in her body.
And the Lord healed the woman with the issue of blood. And then a man who had a dying daughter confronted Jesus about his dying daughter. And Jesus, you know, raised this little daughter from the dead. And all of that happened on the other side. But there was an event which happened on the other side that you really have to sort of keep reading into the story. And it's found in Mark chapter 6 verse 7. And it says, And he, Jesus, called unto him the twelve, his twelve disciples, and he began to send them forth by two and two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they went to the other side, and Jesus gave them authority. Now, the truth is, the Lord Jesus had been in ministry quite a while at this point. And these disciples had been in the traveling ministry with Jesus. They were men who knew the Lord. They were men who were familiar with his style of ministry. He had preached to them about the sower sowing the word, the things concerning the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And these men had watched Jesus heal They had watched Jesus deliver. They had watched Jesus raise the dead. But one day Jesus spoke to them and said, let us go to the other side. And when Jesus said, let us go to the other side, I do not think in my heart that he was talking about a position of geography. But rather he was talking about a spiritual place that these disciples were going to go. Because on the other side these disciples were no longer going to be viewers, people who just watched somebody else do something. But they were going to become participants. The same authority which Jesus had, he was going to impart to them on the other side. And then we have our text scripture, the theme of of this, this whole conference. And it is found in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus had been, you know, ministering and teaching and preaching the things of the kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 9, we are told that one day Jesus looked out and he saw a multitude of people. And as Jesus beheld this multitude of people, the Bible says that he was very moved with compassion. He was moved with pity because these people were as a sheep which had no shepherd. And then Jesus said this about that situation, this multitude of needy people gathered in front of him, gathered in front of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, And Jesus said about that situation, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave unto them power. He gave unto them power power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, as you go, preach, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. So again, it is repeated for us that there came a time in the program of God when God took disciples, followers of Jesus, to the other side. And these men who had simply just trailed along behind Jesus and who had sort of held his coat while he did the miracles and he did the signs and he did the wonders, all of a sudden became men who were empowered themselves. And the Bible says this was just not a measure of power, but this was the same power that the Lord Jesus Christ had been demonstrating to them. They were able to heal the sick. They were able to raise the dead. And rather being defeated by devils, they were able to cast out devils. Because there had been this empowering, this power that had come upon their lives. And the Bible connects all of this with the harvest. The harvest is the time when the Lord's completed program, God's promise, is brought into fulfillment. We all have a personal harvest when the things that God has promised to us actually are fulfilled. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is this projected harvest at the time of the end when the Holy Spirit will be poured out of humanity, upon humanity, a humanity who has no other answers for their lives other than a divine intervention of God. And I think that we are at that place now. Human need has reached such a depth that except God intervene, there are no answers for, for the humanity. So the harvest requires that God's people go to the other side. That God's people become those who are able to possess what is promised. And I think that this phrase, let us go to the other side, it stirs in my heart as a prophetic word for me personally, as a, a woman of God, as a minister of the gospel, as one who's living in very prophetic times, a time when we watch a war going on in the Middle East, a time when China is coming to the forefront, a time when Russia is stirring, and Scripture says to us the time will come when Russia will march south, the kings of the east, China, will march to the west, the times of the end. And the prophetic word of the Lord to us is we have to go to the other side. And rather than just being a people who believe in a theory, a truth that somebody else preaches, we have to move from theory to possession. Because it's one thing to have power in theory. And it's another thing to have power as truth. It's one thing to bring you up tonight and talk to you about power and you hear our cute little messages about power. But it's another thing to, to be powerful. And God is calling us to power. I'm, I'm working on some lessons about women and how God wants to empower women because all the problems of humanity 
began with a woman who ate out at the wrong tree. That's why we women don't like to eat out at wrong restaurants. It started back there. And yet the, the stories of the Bible are just full of women of power. God used a woman to birth a, a nation, Sarah, a barren woman. A little harlot saved her family with a red string in a window. Esther, a little slave girl, saved a whole nation by her obedience to God. And a teenager named Mary was able to believe and conceive the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. And we still speak today of what Mary did. Power. Power. And God, God wants us to understand that there is a time in his plan when we have come to this place where we have to go to the other side. And we have to quit just coming to meetings like this and attending churches where people like me preach power to you, but we're never able to get a grip on it. Where people like me will preach healing to you, but we just never are healed. Where people like Marianne did last night will preach deliverance to us, but we just never are delivered. Because in the final analysis, power has got to be very practical and it has to be lived out. And it is useless, women, to just believe in a theory that is not a truth in your life. Just absolutely useless. Now, when I met my husband, we were married within six months. And, you know, it was just kind of one of these things that I was busy about the wedding. And, you know, my mother and I just never did really sit down and talk about what was going to happen on the wedding night. I don't know. We were busy. She was busy. Mom wasn't that kind of woman anyway. And I knew a little bit about what was going to happen on the wedding night, but about all I knew was some theory I had read in a book. You know, I had read a few little books, and, you know, people, my friends who were married would talk to me and kind of roll their eyes about it, but I couldn't read what the rolling of the eyes meant, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. So... You know, I was just kind of clueless as to what my wedding night was going to be like. But I remember when uh, Jean and I entered the hotel room after we were married. Really, it was a motel room. And uh, so we had our little dinner. And then, you know, Jean said, well, you can just go on and use the bathroom. And I went into that bathroom. And all of a sudden, what was theory became cold reality to me. Because I thought, I have got to take off my clothes. <laughs> now, the problem with that is during our courtship, I had sprayed up and painted up and lifted up and sucked in, but I knew what it looked like down there. <laughs> and I thought, dear God, I hate to walk out of the bedroom and blind him, you know, <laughs> with this... <laughs> have him run out the hotel <laughs> screaming, you know start terror, you know, because, I mean, it was just, I mean, in all the books I had ever read, they just never had walked me through my getting up from the table and walking in this bathroom and undressing and putting on this little skimpy nightgown. And it's none of your business what went on after that. But I will say this, we stayed married because he didn't look any better than I did, so... You just need to get a grip, women. They don't look any better than you look, so quit fleshing out about your fat. They don't look any better. 
So all of a sudden, theory just became reality. It just became reality. I wanted to be a mother because that's what marriage brings. Oh, I want to be a mother. I want to be a mother. Now, I didn't know anything about children. I was the oldest child in our family. I was six years older than my sister, nine years older than my brother. I never really took care of them because I was much older than they. But I wanted to be a mother. And, you know, when I found out that I was pregnant, I was just so blessed and happy. And long before, you know, my, my belly started showing signs of pregnancy, I'd walk around like this, just trying to look pregnant. Now, back in the days that I was pregnant, maternity clothes were skirts that had a string and a big hole cut in the middle, and your belly grew through the hole. But I just panted until I could wear those ugly skirts with these ugly blouses. And when uh, I found out I was pregnant, my mother's sister, who was eight years older than I, found out she was pregnant, so we're pregnant at the same time. Her baby was born in September. My baby would be born in January. I went to the hospital to help her birth her second son. Now, I, I had only heard about childbirth in theory. And when I went into the room and saw what it was like, I immediately left and ran home and would have opted out of the program because I saw what I had been reading about. And I said to my husband, now here's the way this is going to go. All of a sudden, I'm going to start hurting in this part of my body, and it's going to be pain like I've never had before. And when that happens, you'll rush me to the hospital and then they will put me in a room, and the bones of my body will begin to pull apart. And then when at a certain point, I will have to push this baby out of my body. And my husband's just sweating and pale looking, and he said, can you do that? I said, it's not a matter of can I do that. If I don't do that, I die. I have to do that. So at the appointed time, I hurt, the bones separated, I pushed, and they laid my firstborn son in my arms. And I looked at him and said, thank God the hard part is over. <laughs> that was the easy part. That was the easy part of having children. So I just, I just have been a woman who've experienced that theory has to be put into practice. Theory has to be put into practice. The things of God cannot be theory to you. They have to be put into practice. And when God says to us, you're going to go to the other side and power is going to come to your lives, that power has got to go from being theory into practice. It has to move from more than just women like me that stand on platforms and tell you cute little stories and talk to you about power and tongues and ministry and destiny and calling. All of that has to move from theory into practice or else it's, it's no good. And early, early in my spiritual life, I decided that I did not want to be a woman who, who just sat in church and attended meetings 
and listen to other people talk about a life that I would never have. And I came to understand all things are possible if you can believe. So I decided at 30 years old, I would be a believer. With the help of the Holy Spirit, with every fiber of my being, I would find out what it meant to be a woman of faith. So that faith would be a very real thing to me. And that when I heard people preach about faith, I would know what it was. And when I stood later to minister to faith, about faith, I would not be talking in abstract, but I would be talking from my life and my experiences. My husband became a Christian in 1963. We married in 1959. And when Gene became a Christian, he just fell in love with Jesus Christ. So we've been a, a Christian couple most of our married life. 1969, we were both baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Gene and I decided that we would plumb the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of marriage. And that when God said the two shall be one flesh, Gene and I decided that we did not want that to be theory. So that when I would come and talk to you about my life and my marriage, that that's just, you know, a thing that I preach, but it never is true. That we would be a couple with the help of the Holy Spirit and the power of God that we would come to understand in our lives what it is to live together as one flesh. And Jean and I still pursue that after 47 years of marriage, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of what it is for a man and woman to live together in intimacy. I wanted to know that healing was real. I said to God, when I've heard my first sermon on divine healing, I said, Lord, I want to know that this is real. I want to know that I'm a woman that when sickness is in my body, that healing is a reality. I want to know that what you said is true, that the word of God is medicine. Because women, if the theory of it cannot become the practice of it, then we just, we're just not going to go far with God. Because we have a church today who has a lot of information, but I'm not sure we've gone to the other side. And I do know, because God has shown me this, that I think there is coming a great revival among women in this country. And that the answer to the issues of women are not going to be in the natural. It's going to be in God's power coming upon the lives of women, empowering us so that we can get a grip on life. And God is calling his church, God is calling us as women to go to the other side. And we have to make this journey where the thing that is promised, the thing that is preached, the theory of it becomes real in our lives. And it's not always easy to go to the other side. Sometimes we think we're going to the other side, and when in reality, we aren't going anywhere. We were at Disney World when my two sons were small, Disney World in Florida. We took them there for a vacation. We'd been there all day long, hot sun, you know how it is in Florida, whiny boys, you know, you take them to Disney World to enjoy it. You know how your kids are, they just whine and complain, and I mean, it had been a long day, and we're just staggering back to the car, which is in a parking lot, God knows where, 
And we passed someone, and we sort of had this conversation. We're going to the parking lot. And this man said to us, well, you don't have to walk all the way around there. He said, see that lake right there? He said, you can go right down there, and there's a ferry boat that docks right there, and it'll take you to the other side. And so Gene said, well, let's do that. So as we were walking toward this, this pier, and there were just scores of people walking to, to catch this ferry boat, Gene said, speed it up a little bit because we really do want to get on the boat. So we sped it up a little bit. And as we drew near, there was a little bench, just one bench. And it was kind of over here by itself. And Gene said, there's a bench. I hope we can get there so we can sit down. And I said, wonder why they don't put more benches on that boat, because we could see the boat and just this one bench. And Gene said, I don't know, but I hope I can sit down. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll dash ahead and save that bench for you. Now, a lot of people, I thought, were, you know, headed toward the bench, so I'm in a race with handicapped people, crippled people. I mean, I'm just, I could care less. The heart of compassion is gone. I want that bench. And I get the bench, and I sit real big so nobody else can sit there. And Gene finally arrives, and all the four of us sit there. And these people are just filing by us, you know. And Gene said, thank God we got this bench. And I said, I know it. Thank God I'm exhausted. So we're just sitting there like this, feeling smug, you know, that we've got the bench. And People are just, you know, filing past us, and we're looking at them on the boat and uh, this, you know, area looking back at us. There were several people kind of standing at a rail, you know, looking at us, and we're looking at them. And all of a sudden, they began to move back. And Gene and I aren't even on the stupid boat. We're on the pier down here. The bench is on the pier. And they're waving bye-bye to us, and we're just sitting there going nowhere. Now listen, women. I think God's getting up a boatload, and he wants to take us to power. And you don't want to be sitting on a bench going nowhere. Now the saddest story in all of the Bible to me is the story of the Israelites, a people who were brought out of bondage as Marianne preached to us last night, a people who were intended to be a nation, anointed, called, powerful. And thousands of years later, the Israelites have never really understood that. The Israelites never really grasped that God had a plan, and the plan was the promised land. And these Israelites that came out of Egypt just spent their years wandering around. If you track their wanderings in, in the Bible on a map, they just went in circles. And they were very concerned about their own needs. All they did was complain about manna, water, Moses, Aaron. They were just a very disgruntled, dysfunctional people. But the time came when that generation had died and a new generation had come, and God decided that he would call, call them to go to the other side, that he was going to take them across a river, and they were going to enter the promised land. Now, this promised land had been told them that it existed. Moses had said it's out there. 
He had explained to them, this is where we need to be. But they had never gotten there. The promised land was just a hope, a theory, a thought, a vision of Moses. But, but no one ever got there. But one day in the plan of God, God began to deal with a new generation of Israelites. And he began to talk to them and their leader, Joshua, about crossing over into Jordan. Crossing the Jordan and going into Canaan. Because it was in Canaan, which was their promised land, where everything that had been told them was going to be a reality. This is where they would begin to live anointed. This is where they would be gifted. This is where they would become a holy nation, a people peculiar only to God. And let us be very sure, when God told them to cross Jordan and go into the promised land, it was as much about God's plan as it was about their need. Because God's word to Abraham was on the line. God had promised Abraham his descendants would be in that land. And God had to have that land. Because the prophetic word said that Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was in that land. Messiah would be crucified in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was in that land. When the Lord returns a second time, his foot has to touch the Mount of Olives. It was in the land of Canaan. And God had to possess that land. And when God is ready to do a work, when God is ready to reap a harvest, it is as much about God's plan as it is our need. Because what God needs now is what Jesus said. You, you pray because the harvest is great. And God needs a church which will rise up and go to the other side so that power becomes practiced power. So that we no longer are dysfunctional, disgruntled, wandering Christians with agendas, but we become people who have entered in to the reality of all that God has. Now, my life is such, and my age is such, that my husband and I just don't do a lot of home-cooked meals anymore. We're just busy. We eat out a lot with our church people. But, you know, that doesn't stop me from loving cookbooks. I like cookbooks. And we'll go into stores sometimes, restaurants, and I'll walk over to where the cookbooks are. And one day we were in Cracker Barrel, and I'm over there at the, you know, little... Uh, cart and I'm twirling it around looking at cookbooks and I said to my husband I'm going to buy this cookbook he said Jim what in the world do you want a cookbook for you never cook and I said well I love cookbooks he said tell me what you're going to do with that cookbook and I said well here's what I'll do I'll sit beside you at night and read the recipes to you I would have had cooked if I had been cooking. And I'll just read them to you, and you won't gain any weight, and you'll just say, boy, if she had cooked, that would have been really, really good. And I think sometimes that all we do is just listen to people read the Bible. Just read the Bible. and We say, boy, that, that'd be really good if we could just get in the kitchen and put it together. So I want to read to you tonight from the first chapter of Joshua. And I'm going to pursue this from a particular perspective. And it is that the children of Israel crossed over 
and moved into power. And things that they had just heard about, things that they had, you know, hoped for, things that Moses had preached to them, all of a sudden became a reality. And they were people who were able to go over to the other side and to move into the power that God had for them. And let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses." For from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even to the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your border. And there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. Now this was God's commission to take these people into power. And they were going to go from a journey of wilderness living And they were going to go over to the other side of Jordan and they were going to possess what God had said was theirs. And they were going to do it with great power because they moved from the theory of power into the reality of power. Now, when God spoke to Joshua and said, my servant Moses is dead, he was not giving Joshua information about the death of Moses. Because you read the latter part of Deuteronomy and every Israelite understood that Moses had died. There was not a doubt in anyone's mind that Moses was now a dead man. And when God said to Joshua, Moses is dead, he was teaching him a truth about moving forward in God. And it's a truth that we have to understand if we ever move forward with God. It's a truth we have to hold on to if we want to keep moving forward with God. Moses represented yesterday. Moses represented the past. Moses represented the way that they had traveled They were used to Moses. Moses held out his rod and the Red Sea parted and a cloud followed them by by day and fire at night because of Moses and his relationship with God. Moses would take his rod and strike a rock and water would come out. Moses prayed and manna covered the ground. Moses prayed and quail fell from heaven. And Moses just represented the way it had been the way God had blessed them, the things that they had lived in. But now God said to them, Joshua, uh, Joshua, Moses is dead. And God was trying to deal with them about uh, a mindset. Because God's people had a mindset. And they were used to thinking of themselves as these dysfunctional, complaining people who could never get anywhere. It was the way they identified themselves. For 40 years, they had circled in a wilderness and had never gone forward. 
And, and God was trying to break this mentality of life that is lived going in a circle, of life that never gets anywhere, of a relationship with a man that kept telling them, there is a promised land, there is a promised land, there is a promised land, but they never saw it. They never got there. It was unreal to them. Just like some of the things of God are unreal to some of you. And you listen to us preach and we say, there is healing, there is power, there is peace. And some of you have never experienced that. And that's the way that they were. And the thing about mindsets is we get very rigid in our understanding of ourselves. We get very rigid in the way that we allow God to move. We, we become people who cannot move because of mindsets. When I was a born-again Christian, I was 15 years old, had lived my life going to the Methodist church, and I just had a Methodist mindset because all I knew about God was Methodism. We had Methodist pastors. I had a Methodist grandmother, a Methodist mother. And they preached Methodist messages to us. I went to Methodist Sunday schools. And I never said this, but I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, if God belonged to a church, he'd be a Methodist. Because Methodists just somehow had a corner on God. And I was born again into, you know, the Methodist church, remained a Methodist for 15 years. And all of a sudden, God breaks into my life and says to me, you need power and you need to speak in tongues. And I'll tell you, it was not the devil that robbed me. It was this mindset, this mindset that, dear people, I couldn't imagine myself any other way than Methodist. My blood was John Wesley Red, and I couldn't imagine I would be anything but a Methodist, just a mindset. And these Israelites had this mindset. And, and I had the rigidity of a mindset. When God called me into the ministry, God said to me, one day I was praying about going back to school and working on my doctor's degree. And God said to me, I've not called you to be a public educator. I've called you to teach women the Bible. The year was 1971. Now, women, when God said that to me, I, I couldn't have been any more surprised. Because, and now we don't talk this way in church, but this was true. I read my Bible every day, but I didn't really enjoy the Bible. I read it because people said, if you're a Christian, you have to read your Bible. And when I read it, I didn't understand it. I often went to sleep reading the Bible. And I would go to church and they would say, don't you love God's word? And I would clutch it to my breast and tear up like everybody else and sway holding the Bible. I thank God I didn't drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira did when they lied to God just playing religious games with God. And now God says, I'm going to be a, a Bible teacher. And women, it was so far from my thinking, I wouldn't have been any more surprised if God had said to me, I'm calling you to be a waitress at Hooters. Do you have Hooters up here? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have been any more surprised because being this Bible teacher, you know, was just far, far beyond my understanding. 
Now, in order to move forward with God, in order to move into power, this rigidity of the mindset has to be destroyed because it keeps us from going forward with God. God spoke to a little old woman when she was quite old, a, a barren woman, and said to Sarah, I'm going to make you a mother. And Sarah laughed out loud when God told her this, because in her thinking, she just could not imagine anyone her age who was postmenopausal could be a mother. And her problem was compounded because she's married to an impotent man that the Bible says was as good as dead. So here's this woman and man that God chooses for destiny, and he's as good as dead, and she's postmenopausal. No wonder she laughed out loud. But yet, God's calling her, now hear me, beyond her capacity. And the things that are going to stop her is this rigid mindset. There's no way in the world I'll ever be a mother. So you're just laughing at God. I laughed out loud when God said, I'm going to make you a Bible teacher. See, we keep God locked in the boundaries of our own thinking. And we're not able to really go to the other side because we limit God by the way that we think about ourselves. And here's this woman who laughed out loud at God, but yet uh, when, when God was able to work with her at age 100, she gave birth to a baby. Now, can you just imagine how this 99-year-old woman must have looked pregnant? Dear Lord, if the men weren't here, I could give vivid descriptions, but we're not going to go there and do that. But I just think about pregnant women and what I know it looks like under here, and 90 years old. And I think people looked at that old woman waddling around with that baby and said, this has to be God. This is a miracle, a miracle. See, just these things that we do that keep us bound. Moses was a stutterer. Marianne read that to us last night. He stammered. And God picked him out one day and said, I want you to go deliver the children of Israel. The problem is the man stutters. He stammers. Now, Moses is not Charlton Heston. Does everybody understand that? Because Charlton Heston talks in these Hollywood tones. Moses stuttered. So his message to Pharaoh would have gone like this. A because he can't say peas. And no wonder it took 10 signs from God to get Pharaoh to obey. I mean, Pharaoh must look down and say, this guy is crazy. <laughs> Who is this stuttering, stammering guy? Where did he come from? And so Moses just had to do miracle after miracle until Pharaoh gave up. And Moses argued with God on the backside of the mountain, said, who am I? Who am I? Because it was the rigidity of his own thinking that kept him bound and kept him where God did not want him to go. See, when God gets ready to move you forward, if you want to go from being a dysfunctional woman that just listens to women like me preach and, 
you know, hopefully I'll have some kind of word for you and some kind of experience for you. If you want to move from that to a woman who, who really has experienced all God has, you've got to understand, you've got to step out beyond the boundaries of your own thinking. Because God is calling you to something beyond your capacity. To do something that you don't really understand how you're going to do it. See, you don't understand this about me. I understand this about me. It is a miracle for me to stand here and do what I'm doing tonight. Not because I was afraid of speaking in public. Because I absolutely didn't understand the scriptures. Didn't really have a love for the scriptures. Until I began to follow God and God put that in my heart. So this is a miracle that you're seeing here tonight, that I could open the Bible and get a message and would love the Word of God. Because God is always calling us beyond our capacities. Uh, every year in our church, we have horseshoe tournaments. And uh, it's just an event that the youth sponsor to raise money for their youth campaigns. And I used to pitch horseshoes when my dad was, you know, alive and I was a little girl. And Daddy had horseshoe stobs in the backyard and we had barbecues every weekend during the summer in the south where I lived and dad would pitch horseshoes and I was a little girl and I'd pitch horseshoes with him. Well I'm 67 years old I hadn't pitched horseshoes forever but I just decided I'd pitch horseshoes. So I got me a partner Lelia, not my husband, Lelia and Lelia and I have entered the horseshoe tournaments and here I am the oldest woman out there pitching away Sometimes my horseshoes go up in the tree, you know. I, but I decided I didn't want to be a rigid old woman, that I, that I wanted to challenge myself. So I've been pitching in the horseshoe tournaments. I've won second place, third place. This year my husband won first place. I won second place. And he said when we went home, do you realize we were the two oldest people pitching and I won first and you won second? So you just shouldn't count the old ones out because we step out beyond our capacity. Rigidity. See, women, you've got to get out of your mindsets of the way you think about each other because rigidity will rob you of a lot that God has. Jean and I bought a king-size bed. And in the past, we had a regular-sized bed, a double bed. And then we bumped up to a queen bed. And our, our habit is that he hugs one side of the bed and I hug the other. He's a tall man, six feet, one inches tall. So in this little double bed, he likes to sleep facing the outside and I like to sleep facing the outside. So we both kind of hug the edges. But now we've got this huge queen, a king bed. So he's on his side and I'm on my side with all this space. So one night, he reached over, and he started dragging me across the bed. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I wanted to kiss you goodnight. And I said, well, come over here to my side of the bed. And he said, well, I'm comfortable. I don't want to leave my side of the bed. He said, I'm going to drag you over here. And I said, well, my back hurts from pitching horseshoes. You just come over here. I don't want to make the journey over there. And he said, look, why don't we just high-five and go to bed? So we just high-five and <laughs> went to bed. Because we're just too rigid to roll toward the center and, you know, say goodnight to each other. And you just lose some pleasure when you just hug the side and won't, you know, get out of your rigid ways. So God is calling you to go to the other side. 
And women, I, I want to say it very honestly. I feel for many of you that God's calling you far beyond what you think, far beyond what you know. And you, you need to let God be God and let God's power come upon you and make you all that you can be in God. Then the Bible says God had said to him, Moses is dead. And then he said, you and all of these people, you and all of these people are going to go to the other side. Now, our lives involve people. See, the real stumbling block of our lives is people. You know, we can kind of handle the devil, but people. People just absolutely un upend us. Moses never entered the promised land because of people. And God teaches us here that, that our lives have to affect people. Now, I firmly believe that there was an anointing of God that was given to every believer. Because John said, we have this unction from God. The word unction means anointing. And I read that one day in, in the little epistles. And I came to understand that I carried anointing inside of me. That, that anointing was not this abstract thing, that it actually lived in me and I walked around with it. And again, I made one of these decisions that I, I didn't want anointing to be this thing where I just stood up here and, you know, kind of did my hand here and you looked at me and oohed and odd. But I wanted my anointing, my life, to affect people. And I wanted anointing not so much to operate here, but I wanted anointing to affect the way I lived as a wife. Because the Bible says if a woman can live right, that the woman who lives right, the woman who lives empowered by God, can win her husband who doesn't believe without saying a word. It's incredible power. And I saw that, that without saying a word, I could influence my husband for good or for bad. And I, I wanted my anointing I wanted my life to affect my husband for the good. That it wasn't just something that I paraded around on a stage, but it was something that I actually lived, something that affected my home and, and made a difference. The Bible says uh, that women are the gods of the home, and you go into a home and you don't feel the spirit of a man, you feel the spirit of the woman. I can go into a home and tell you a lot about the woman. Because the home talks about the woman. It's the spirit of the woman. God has given us the domain of our homes to exercise anointing there. And to be mighty, mighty influences upon our husbands. Uh, I wanted to be uh, anointed uh, where my children were concerned. And I, my husband and I taught Gary and Mark that the Holy Spirit is not a, a being that you just encounter in church. The Holy Spirit lives in this house. And the Holy Spirit lives in us, and the Holy Spirit talks to us. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us live life. And as Gary and Mark were their teenage years, Gary and Mark would do what all boys do growing up. You know, Gary particularly just had this agenda, how close can I walk to sin without going to hell? Now, he didn't want to go to hell, but neither did he want to live right. And they were just teenage boys, and, you know, they're out there in the world. We couldn't go with them. They're teenagers. So we would say to our boys, now, boys, we can't go with you tonight 
But there's one who goes with you. He's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knows where you're going. The Holy Spirit knows what you're doing. And the Holy Spirit talks to us. And you need to understand that. And do you know the Holy Spirit did talk to us? And those boys would come in, and their daddy would meet them at the door and say, well, the Lord said. Or I'd meet them at the door and say, I was praying, and the Lord said this. And sure enough, that's what they had been doing. Gary one time decided he'd run away from home. He got mad, ran out the door, slammed the door, disappeared in darkness. And Gene prayed, and God told him where he was, and he went and picked him up. And we made believers out of those kids because the Holy Spirit became a reality in our home. So Mark would go to a movie we told him not to see. He would call us up from the lobby and he'd say, Mother, that movie you and Dad told me not to see, I'm here in the lobby, I bought a ticket, I'm about to go in, and I knew the Holy Spirit was going to tell you and Daddy where I was, and I just thought I'd beat him to the draw and tell you that I'm here. And when I get home, you can ground me and just do whatever you want to, but I'm here, and I just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> Anointing. Anointing. See, the Bible says that when we go to the other side, there'll be people that'll go with us. Women, God wants to give you your families. God wants to give you your husbands. God wants to give you your children. God doesn't want this just be messages of hope and Women like me prophesying to you and saying, the Lord's going to, the Lord's going to. If you're a married woman, your husband doesn't serve God. You need him to serve God now, not 20 years from now. We need our sons and our daughters to come to God now, not 15 years, not 35 years. Now, we need, we need God to let the anointing uh, affect our, our children. I pray that the anointing would show me this generation and that I, as a woman, would speak into the lives of the young women of this generation. Because our young women have been brought up in a feminist culture and, and they have been, you know, uh, invaded and permeated by the ways of the world, many times brought up in godless homes. And these young women don't really understand godliness and anointing. God, God showed me, my husband and I teach marriage seminars, and in the marriage seminars, I, I talk to women about being wives. And the Lord told me that I have reached a place with a generation that the way I used to teach submission could no longer be taught that way because these young women struggle with submission to a man because of this thing that went on with the male and, and the female. And the Lord said to me that I would model submission to this younger generation and show them that I have lived as a submissive woman to a godly man and it has not been bondage but great freedom to me. Because submission does bring great freedom when it's submitted to the right head. See, submission is a very freeing thing. But we live in this culture. So I have asked God to let me understand this generation. Because the harvest is that generation. And we cannot closet ourselves in our church building, singing our little praise songs, talking about harvest, and yet go into the world and not affect people in the world where we live. Gary, our older son, called Gene and I not too long ago, and he said, Mother and Dad said, Kenny Chesney's going to be in Atlanta, 
and I have tickets. And he said, Mark, Mark's my other son, Mark and Olivia, that's my granddaughter. He said, they're going. A couple of people are coming up with Mark. And he said, uh, Mother and Dad, i got two tickets left. It's going to be about three rows from the stage. He said, uh, why don't you and Dad go? So, I, you know, Gene and I are not Kenny Chesney fans. We have no interest in that. And I said to Gene, you want to go? He said, no way do I want to go. He said, I'm just not interested in that. And I said, well, I think I might go. You know, the grandkids are there, and I think I might go. So I called Gary, and I said, I think I'll go to the Kenny Chesney concert. And he said, well, Mother, don't dress up. Wear jeans. Everybody wears jeans. So here I am in the middle of a Kenny Chesney concert. And God spoke to me and said, I put you here because I want you to watch this generation. I'm on the fourth, about third or fourth row. And I mean, people around us drinking, you know, bebopping, standing on their chairs. And these little girls come in and sit in front of me and they're drinking, they're half drunk. And then all of a sudden here comes Kenny, you know, and Kenny's going to ride in on a swing and come up to the stage and sing. And when Kenny appeared, Gary said, Mother, here's some cotton. Put it in your ears. <laughs> and I put that cotton in my ears. And I'll tell you, I thought, dear, God deliver me from this place. I hope you're not Kenny Chesney fans. He's fine. But I thought, good gracious, what are they so excited about? The little girls in front of me stood in their chairs. Their chairs collapsed. The beer went on my feet, on my jeans. And they said to me, oh, ma'am, we're so sorry. I said, it's okay, it's okay. I said, I imagine it's real hard to get drunk and dance in those chairs. And they said, it really is. And I said, I can tell that. It's just hard to do. And God spoke to me. Now, hear me. That's a generation I've got to reach. I've got to reach those girls. These little girls that think it's fun standing on a chair in darkness, you know, bebopping to music, dressed God knows how. That's the generation that is the harvest. And it's about those people and my anointing for those people, not just my anointing for a church building. I went home that night. I'll tell you, my hair was standing up. Cotton was in my ears. I didn't hear for four days. I smelled like beer. My makeup had bled off. My, hair, my eyes were, you know, crossed. And Jean took one, one look at me and said, I knew I wasn't supposed to go. I said, you got that right. You're not supposed to go. God wants us to reach people. Brokeback Mountain was a movie about two men who fall in love and have a passionate love affair. And I read in the USA Today that Hollywood was shocked because the movie was expected to play well in New York City and San Francisco and L.A. because of the homosexual communities that lived in those cities. What shocked Hollywood is Brokeback Mountain played well in middle America. Middle America. And the article went on to say Hollywood never thought middle America would go for that movie. And they found out that heterosexual couples went to the movie and enjoyed it. That's the harvest. And we as the church have got to understand anointing is about those people. They will not come to the church, but we live among them. We function among them. God puts us in jobs and God puts us in malls because it's about affecting those people. 
And then the Bible says, God told them, Moses is dead, you and all this people go over. He said, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon. Now, the victories of power are won foot by foot. Many times healing comes foot by foot. Uh, Many times deliverance comes foot by foot. If God has called you into ministry, your ministry is foot by foot. My husband starts churches, apostles' churches, and we have learned churches which are strong are built foot by foot. And sometimes we despise the foot. And you know, you say to somebody, well, how are you doing? And well, I'm only moved about this far. But thank God for the foot. Thank God that God is doing something and you're just moving along foot by foot because victory is oftentimes just an inch at a time, just a step at a time. God's showing you what to do and you step into it. I believe pantyhose were designed by demons of hell to torment women <laughs> because pantyhose are, are just lies from the pit of hell. You go to the uh, supermarket or the department store and you read the sizes on the back. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I don't care where your weight and your height is, they don't fit. And then it will say lies like control top. They control nothing, absolutely nothing. And you pull them out of the bag and you've got these little flat holes that are about this long that have got to cover all this fat and cellulite and all this stuff. And do you know how we put pantyhose on? Inch by inch and foot by foot and inch by inch and foot by foot. And you don't just jump into them. It's inch by inch and foot leg by leg and leg by leg, and leg by leg, and then you suck it in, you do this. And then about halfway through praise and worship, the fat that's in that uh, control top comes out, and you'll see women praise God this way. (laughs) Inch by inch. I'm sorry your holy eyes had to see this man. (laughs) Do we have some sunglasses for these men, Jim? We (laughs) need to shield them. Just inch by inch. But how many know if you do it inch by inch, eventually, praise God, they're up there. (laughs) Victory is inch by inch. Inch by inch. So God said to him, you're not just going to jump over there and get all the promises. You're going to have to inch by inch. Foot by foot. When I went into ministry, I was prophesied that I would go into ministry. The prophet of God in our church, very godly man, was a man who, you know, just had words that just were out of, you know, the world. You just knew he'd heard from God. And one Sunday night, he called me up. I was probably, it was about 1972 or three, And he said to me, Sister June... He said, the Lord has found you faithful because I had been teaching two Bible studies in my home and a business and then a third Sunday school class in our church. So I taught three times a week. And he said, God has watched you do that and has found you faithful. Now the Lord is going to send you 
across this country. You're going to go from coast to coast, from border to border. At this time, women, I lived in Alabama. I was a stay-at-home mother. Nobody knew who I was. He said, you're going to cross the waters and you'll go overseas. And he said, the Lord is going to open doors for you. And he said, Sister June, you're going to find yourself standing on platforms and you're going to look out and you're going to look into the faces of people you don't know. And they'll look back at you and they don't know you. And he said, you'll stand there and you'll say, how did I come to be in this place? And he said, it's because the Lord has opened a door for you. And he said, uh, the, the Lord is just going to cause people to call you. And these people are going to say, you don't know me and I don't know you. And he said, June, uh, they'll invite you to come minister and you'll go because the Lord has called you into ministry. Well, to say the least, my hair stood on end. You know, I got very excited. About a week, week and a half, two weeks later, I received a phone call from Atlanta, Georgia. A woman who had a, a ministry with Women's Aglow Fellowship. She was the area president, and at that time, Aglow was just beginning. She called me to come to Atlanta to speak, and she began the conversation this way. You don't know me, and I don't know you. Just what he had said to me. And she invited me to come to this conference. There were over 1,500 women there. And when I left the conference, I had invitations to speak in other cities, other states. And my ministry began, and I've been traveling ever since then. I had been doing that for a matter of maybe a year or so, when all of a sudden, this opposition came to me. And women, I don't know how to explain it, but I knew that what was going on in my life was not physical. My heart would race. I would break out in a cold sweat, and when I'd break out in a cold sweat, my hands would tremble like this, and I would feel like I was going to faint. And I never knew when this would start. It, sometimes it'd be at home, sometimes, you know, I just never knew. It'd just all of a sudden come on me. And I knew that the enemy, the devil, Satan, the resistor, had come to rob me of what God had said was mine. I knew that I wasn't going to go to a doctor and put my arm on a table and take a shot and be well. I knew that it wasn't a matter of a pill. I knew that I was in a spiritual battle for the word of God that God had said was mine. So I was well taught in faith because I told you I wanted to be a woman of faith. And we went to a church where we were taught faith. My husband is a great man of faith. So I knew how to fight the fight of faith. So I went to my husband and I said to him, I want you to agree with me. As the Bible says, if any two of you shall agree, and Jean and I are the two that can agree, the Bible says, if you can agree, it will be done for you by my Father which is in heaven. And I said to Jean, this is the devil. I want you to agree this stops. And he prayed for me, and we agreed. I wrote it in the fly leaf of my Bible on this date. At this time, Jean and I agreed that I am delivered and healed of this trembling, this sweating, this pounding heart. My knees would feel weak. And do you know, after we prayed... I got worse. How many of you have ever been prayed for and got worse? I thought, dear God, I wish I'd never gone there. Wish I'd never gone there. But yet I had all these meetings, and I just had to do these meetings. And women, I would drive to those meetings, and the devil would say to me, you're going to die. You're going to 
pass out in this car and go over a cliff. You get to the meeting, you won't be able to stand up because your knees are not so hard. You won't be able to stand up. And, and you know, I'd, I'd get there and I would have been crying and I'd sit in the car and put my makeup back on. Go in and just great anointing would come on me. And I'd pray for women like you and they'd write me letters. They got healed. Some women had the same problems I had and they got healed. And I'd think, dear God. I prayed for them, and they got healed, and I'm not healed. And then I'd lay hands on myself, you know, trying to (laughs) heal myself. Now, hear me. It got so bad after a year and a half that I decided to quit. And I said to my husband, I'm out of this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I can't live this way. I'm going to take a sabbatical. And Jean said to me, well, Jean, maybe you do need to take a sabbatical. I said, I am. I'm two years. I'm going to take two years off. And I said, if I'm better at the end of two years, I might talk to God about doing this again. But I'm out of here. The next day, I had to speak in Antiana, Alabama, which is about a 40-mile trip from where I was. I'm in the car telling God, God, I'm going to quit. I'm going to do this meeting. Then I'm taking a sabbatical. So I get to the meeting. I go into a broom closet for the prayer. That's where the prayer warriors were, in a broom closet in a restaurant And we're standing in a circle. We pray for this meeting. This is my last meeting. Nobody knows this but Gene and me and God. And as I prepare to leave the broom closet, a woman speaks to me. And she says, just a minute, June. God's got a word for you. And I stopped. I still see myself, women. I stood in the door of that broom closet holding my Bible. I had on a polka dot dress. And I turned and looked at her like this. And this is what she said to me. June. The Lord wants to know, why are you thinking about quitting? And the minute she said that, I said, oh, God, don't do this to me. You know, there's some words we want to hear, and then there's some words we don't want to hear. And that woman began to read my mail. She said, June, the Lord wants to know why you said to him that you want a two-year sabbatical. The Lord wants to know why you want to quit. This is the beginning of your ministry. Why do you want to quit at the the beginning of your ministry? The Lord said, why do you need two years off? And that woman just brought me to a decision. She said, June, the Lord said to tell you, you're not to quit. So what could I do? What could I do? What it did do was make me clean up my prayer closet because I know what you pray in private, God will... Preach it back to you in public. It made me quit praying like that in private. So I just said, well, God, I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll just, I'll just do it. I don't know how long it was. It was probably two years that I just resisted that thing. Never knew when it happened. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night. It never bothered me during a meeting, but sometimes it'd bother me going. Sometimes it'd bother me coming. But you know what happened? I just kept moving foot by foot. And the enemy just kept telling me, you'll never make it, but I moved foot by foot. And one day I was in my car going to a meeting, and I realized that I hadn't had one of those attacks in weeks. Now, I had lived with this until it was just a part of me. I expected it, and, you know, I thought, well, it's been a couple of weeks. And I held my hand out. My hand was steady, felt my heart. My heart wasn't racing. My legs felt strong. And you know what had happened, women? I just kept moving foot by foot by foot by foot. 
until finally one day I just walked out of the problem into the reality of the Word of God. Foot by foot. Just foot by foot. See, that's the way we move forward with God. Now, to be women of the harvest, you've got to understand God has assignments for you. You have to be women of responsibility. The Bible says God has measured something to every one of us. Uh, in Joshua, it said this way, that you're going to come to your borders. Women, the answers to your lives are when you find your borders. The place where God has you. Doing what God's called you to do. I'm not a woman without problems, but I'm a woman who's found her borders. And much of the peace of my life, much of the answers to my life, have been because I found this assignment, I found this responsibility. My life has taken on purpose beyond myself. So that I understand I'll live as long as God has use of me in the world. Because I'm, I'm a woman who has measures and responsibilities. And God wants you to move to this place of power. God wants you to move beyond rigidity of your mindsets. God wants you to go home and affect the people you live with. Because if you cannot do this, this conference is for nothing. It's absolutely nothing. God wants you to understand what God's going to do in your life, whether it be a healing, a ministry, a promise, a husband, a child. Usually it's going to come foot by foot. And you just have to keep going sometimes when there's no encouragement. And every one of you have your borders. I know by revelation some of you are moving outside of your borders living outside of what God has for you. Your answers are within your borders. Israel's answers were in the promised land. Their answers are still in the promised land. And God wants us to go to our borders. Now, one last thing I'm going to say, and then I, I'm going to pray for you. My husband and I were graduates of the University of Alabama, and our second year there was Bear Bryant's first year. Bear Bryant was a famous football coach, and he led the Alabama football team to national championships. And Gene and I were there when the Bear came, and then we were alumni, and we had boys. So in our early married years, we would go to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and watch Bear Bryant and the Alabama football team play football. But, you know, we've gotten older, and we live in Georgia now. So we hadn't been to see Alabama play football in years, and one October, Gene said to me, I notice you're home on this particular date. He said, Alabama is playing the University of Florida in Tuscaloosa. He said, why don't we go? And, you know, we'll just go back to all the places where we dated and we'll enjoy the football game. We'll eat dinner and come home. It's about a three-hour drive from where we live. So we go. We get to Bryant-Denny Stadium. There are about 80,000 people going in, and we had to go to the restroom. So Gene gave me my ticket, and he said, this is your ticket. If you get separated from me, I'll meet you at our seats. And that ticket said that in section KK, row number four, seat number two, was mine. Bought and paid for. My husband had paid for it. Row number four, seat number two, section KK. 
So I made my way and found row number four, seat number two, section KK, and I settled into seat number two. Jean had seat number one. Number one was on an aisle, and then there was three and four over here to my left. So I'm just, you know, this good little southern lady, and I get in the boundaries of seat number two. And I'm just sitting there, my purse is, you know, behind my feet and got my legs crossed like a woman, just sitting there straight and, you know, waiting for the game. And eventually this whole section fills up. I'm the only woman in the section. And it fills up with Bubba's. Do you know who Bubba is? <laughs> Bubba's got this big belly. Bubba's got Alabama hat on. Bubba's got radios and, you know, just stuff under his arm. And this huge Bubba came and sat in seat number three, right next to me. So Jean's in one, I'm in two, Bubba's in three. And Bubba doesn't sit like a southern woman. You know, Bubba just sits like Bubba, kind of, you know, spreads out. And now we're near the floor of the stadium, so every time anything happened, we have to stand up and look like this. And every time they'd do something, we'd all stand up. And every time we sat back down, big Bubba over here is taking more seat number two. So after several times of this, I'm literally sitting like this on my husband. You know, my neck's hurting, and all of a sudden it dawned on me that he's sitting in more seat number two than I am. And this thing just came over me. Power just kind of rose up in me. And I thought, this seat number two is mine. I paid as much for seat number two as he paid for seat number three. And I can't help it if he's too big for seat number two. That's not, I mean, for three, that's not my problem. But seat number two belongs to me. So the next time he stood up, I stayed seated. And I uncrossed my legs, and I took back seat number two. So I'm just sitting there like this. And when he sat down, he sat on me because he's used to having seat number two. Actually just sat right down on me. And I just kept looking forward, didn't even look at him. And he kind of looked down at me like this. Now, this is the truth. That man sat down in seat number three, put his thigh next to my thigh, and did this and tried to push me off of seat number two. Now, being a woman of God, when I felt his thigh, my first instinct was to go back to where I had been. But I thought, no, I felt power come over me. So instead of, you know, doing this, I just took my thigh and pushed him back over onto seat number three. And then in a few minutes, he kind of did this to me, and I just did this back. Then I turned to Gene, and I said, would you pray for me? He said, why should I pray for you? I said, I'm in thigh-to-thigh -thigh combat with Bubba over here, and I need prayer. And he said, leave that man alone. I said, I'm not leaving that man alone. He's got my seat. And I'll tell you, we had a little bit of a battle, but when the whistle blew, I was in full possession of seat number two. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, the devil's just a big bubba. And women, God has bought and paid for a destiny. 
God has bought and paid for healing. God has bought and paid for your deliverance. God has bought and paid for your, your salvation of your family. God loves you and don't let the devil take what's yours. You've got the ticket and bump him off of your seat and let God arise and let the enemy be scattered. Praise you, God. Stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Now, every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, tonight I pray for your women. I know there are needs here, Lord. And I thank you now that there is power for these women. And I pray, Lord, that there shall just be the release. Now